Hey folks, Dr. Ed Williams here. Um, facial plastic surgeon. I've been in practice for 28 years. And as you know, I am passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine and teaching that to our colleagues, because quite frankly, uh, the consultants, um, in all fairness, they try to do a good job, but they have not done it. They haven't done the job that I've done and made the same mistakes that I've made or that you've made. And what I'm looking to do is to help help our people, physicians, let's face it, we have a bond, you know, we go through all this training together and no one's going to look out for us like we are going to look out for each other. Uh, the bankers, the insurance people, the consultants, they haven't done the job and, uh, and, and they really, quite frankly, I've been disappointed with, um, with some of the advice I've gotten over the years. I've gotten some good advice, but I've also gotten some really terrible advice. So what I want to talk about today, and I think uh, are the lessons learned in the past 28 years of me being in, in practice. And so I'm going to share with you my story um, and some of the lessons learned. And really, the lessons learned come from making big ex mistakes. I always say that research is cheap. There's a reason why Corporate America spends uh, in, in the uh, insurance or the um, pharmaceutical industry spends 20% of their revenue, almost between 15 and 20 on research because research is cheap and expensive mistakes are not. So I'm going to tell you the big mistakes I made over the past many years. Now, uh, and business, just so you know, business can be learned. You know, I did it. Um, I did what most of us did the first 10 years of my practice, 10, 12 years. Um, I just worried about getting busy and take care of patients and growing my practice. Um, but I didn't have a business mindset. You know, what is the goal of business? The goal of business is, um, and I honestly, what I've learned in my discovery process, and this maybe is one of my big mistakes, is that a business mindset is not intuitive for most surgeons. We are not trained this way until you learn how to switch your brain on to how do I build a team, grow a business, and have something valuable. Um, you, you focus too much on yourself and getting busy and generating revenue. Uh, my transition point was around 2005 when I got accepted to an RPI executive MBA program. And... Um, but I decided I didn't want to take the time away from my family at that point. And I decided to go into high gear with consultants and coaches. And I read everything there is uh, to read. And now I've mentored uh, dozens of uh, aesthetic surgeons around the country. Um, what it really comes down to is a process is a very deliberate process of execution, continued learning, and uh, dedicating time to constantly working on the business um, so that you can work toward becoming irrelevant in your business. And that is a hard thing for us to do because we are ego driven, but that's the goal ultimately. So lesson number one, do not ever become complacent. You know, I don't know what success is, but, but I think about it, you, you know, and to me, complacency, and I'm not a golfer, you know, complacency is the, is the sand trap before the hole. You know, you've just, uh, you've just had 17, um, you've just played 17 amazing holes of golf and you got the 18th hole and you end up in the sand trap. And 
so keep learning, have a mentor and, and read. And as I say, hustle like you're broke. I don't care how successful you are, becoming complacent will bring you down. And there's a reason why they retire CEOs typically as they get into their 60s, because they just, you know, they've proven themselves, they've been there, they've done it, and many of them just don't have the fire in them. So do not can be complacent. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. You know, one of them is uh, my buddy, uh, you know, uh, uh, extremes of the example, you know, is uh, Andrew, Andrew Giacono. You know, Andrew has had his extraordinary success, and he has never become complacent with his posting on social media, his staying engaged. Um, he certainly doesn't have to work as hard as he is now, but he does not let the grass grow under him. And he is always hustling like he's broke. And I can say that because I know that's how he thinks. Um, my example of that, of, of what not to do, is what I did. Okay. And this is the example. Again, do not become complacent. You see, I don't really like marketing. I hate it. I'll be honest. It's not part of who I am. Uh, I always felt like, you know, you'd be a good doctor, do the best work. You know, you speak at the podium because, uh, you know, that's the right thing to do. You teach the residents because that's the right thing you do. And I never really took a very serious, uh, deliberate approach to our marketing. And around 2015, you know, if, although I'd been in practice for at that point for, you know, what, uh, t- almost 20 years at that point, I went to practice 1992. So um, uh, 2012 was 20 years. Uh, we were busy. We stayed busy. We went, we, you know, we did all right through the, re- the Great Recession of 2008. But the last four or five years between 2008 and 2012, uh, going on to 15, you know, my staff will be like, have you looked at the website? You know, we need more before and afters. We need more Google reviews. And, you know, I was quote resting on our laurels. Uh, when I say that resting on our laurels from a, from a marketing point of view, because I never really took it seriously. I mean, we were still in the business hustling like we're broke, but we, I, I take full responsibility, you know, we let our guard down uh, from a marketing point of view, and our numbers started to flatten and soften. And I started, you know, someone seeing some of the local competition coming up and busier in certain aspects of our practice than we were. And you know, we run a world class practice here. I mean, we've got we've got physicians that speak on the podium uh, who have tremendous amount of experience. Yet some of our local I call them local yokels because they're, you know, they're nowhere near our talent level or commitment level to our patients or surgical expertise. Um, We're out beating us from a marketing point of view. And I learned a a real uh, severe lesson here not to become complacent in marketing. And we now, it took us four or five years to get back on our, our A game, but we're, we're rocking them. Um, But, you know, and this is, wasn't a deliberate, I mean, it just happened. And, and I think no matter where we are, what we're doing in business, we don't ever want to become complacent. And what I say now in all areas, don't become, you know, continue to learn, continue to keep learning um, from a business point of view, if that's your thing. I mean, if you just want to work for somebody, that's fine too. Uh, but if you really want to drive forward, um, don't be complacent. Next one. Okay, biggest mistake I made was uh, meetings. You know, 
Meetings, you should have more meetings, not less. Now, let me tell you my thinking about my previous prejudice. As a, as a surgeon, uh, I don't particularly like meetings. Most of us look at them as a waste of time. When I was at the hospital years and years ago, you know, I was asked to chair the surgical QA committee. And what you realize is a lot of bureaucrats or, uh, you know, people in the administration have nothing better to do. So this is what they do. They have a lot of meetings. And I had a distaste and disdain for meetings. So I tried to keep meetings uh, to a very, very minimum. What I learned is that uh, where the most effective business leaders are really good at communication. Do you know 70% of people, 70% of people will leave a job over frustration. And when you sit down with them and talk to them at the exit interview, you know what they, you find out things that you should have known but your communication wasn't there. So what we have is I have very structured meetings, very deliberate schedule. I mean, they're like with surgical precision as far as the fewest meetings I can possible to get the most information. But having said that, we have a lot of meetings. Our team has a morning huddle. I meet each month with the managers. We do strategic planning once a year. Uh, and I have a very precise and exact agenda so that the most information is exchanged in the least amount of time. We leave the meetings with action items, who's responsible, what's the timeline, and then I use that to check back in. If you do this correctly, if you do this correctly, it's not a waste of time. I'll just to give you an example, we, I have one business that I, uh, that I uh, run that does uh, about $4.5 million a year um, with a nice margin of profit. And... I spend exactly 90 minutes a month in a manager's meeting to get all the information I, and I feel like I have my information at the fingertips and have done this for many years. Um, so if our meetings are very exacting and they're precise and we have an agenda, there's not wasted time because I, like you, do not want to waste time because time is not money. Time is life. I can make more money. I can't make more time in my life. And I am not willing to sacrifice my family or my time away from my family and wasted in, in, in meetings. So we look at our meeting time as, uh, as uh, very strategic. So more meetings, not less. Uh, the answer is not to have less meetings because then, again, the most effective meter, uh, business leaders understand this and get a lot more done because they are to leverage their time. The next, okay, is we all hate change. And, and there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, I used to hand out, I, I, any time we had a change in leadership, and even when I took over as president of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, the first meeting I had is I handed out this thing that came from Harvard, you know, 12 reasons why people hate change. We all hate change, right? And I'm not going to get into why, but we should embrace change. And this is where I, you know, Kodak is no longer basically around because they didn't embrace change. Blockbuster was a flash in the pan, no longer around. And I can tell you the stories of each of these comp companies, but we have been dealt a card. It's called the American Affordable Care Act, right? But change presents opportunity. And that is why very deliberate strategic planning is an integral part of running any business. Um, I now understand this and have for the last 10 years, and we have a very effective strategic planning cycle, and we emerge with action items, who's responsible, 
And the information that I get from our strategic planning is extraordinary. Um, like little things that you didn't think about, but if you don't ask the people on the front line, you're not going to get that information. Um, for example, years ago, our, our breast dog fees were maybe quote a little high and I didn't know, but, but, but my partner, his breast augmentation, uh, numbers were down. They were soft, you know, compared to the area benchmarking. Right. And one of the things we found out from one of the frontline people is that, you know, when we were talking about what are, what are our weaknesses and, you know, what are our threats and what are our weaknesses? And one of them was Dr. Polonese's breast dog fee is a little high. So, well, how did you know that? Well, when people call, you know, but she said, well, we found out, you know, because people were calling, they would say, well, you know, they would, I tried to schedule an appointment and they didn't because they, Dr. Polonese's fees are a little high. If we didn't ask that specific question, we wouldn't know the answer. So strategic planning is critical and should be at least in your schedule, at least every year. Um, The next big mistake, working harder is not a strategy. I'll tell you a story. Um, years ago, with the, the affordable people were talking about the Affordable Care Act and actually Medicare was having cuts. My uh, insurance-based colleagues, one of my friends who's a gastroenterologist says, he goes, that's fine, I, I'm just gonna work harder. Um, Working harder is not a strategy. What happens is your health will suffer and your family will suffer. And as I mentioned before, I can make more money, but I can't make more time. So working harder is not a strategy. And um, I had a, one of my fellows say to me, Dr. Williams, I got to tell you something. This is around 2010. I don't think I know anyone. This guy, he, he did his undergrad at, uh, he did his medical school at Stanford and did his um uh, residency at Harvard. So he's not a slouch, right? He says, you may be the most efficient person I know. And I don't know if I took that as a, I said, I don't know if that's a compliment, right? I mean, but really what it comes down to is I want to be home with my family. I want to, I don't want to waste time at work. So working harder is not a strategy. And I am constantly looking at how can we, me, how can we be as efficient as humanly possible because we only have so many hours in a day. The next thing is understanding leadership. You know, leadership is a process. And I think it's important for us to really, to realize that not everybody like Rockefeller uh, is leadership intuitive, but you can get better at it if you make it very deliberate and you have an open mind and become receptive to how do I become a better leader? One of my favorite stories is about uh, Bastion, Ed Bastion, who is the CEO of Delta. Now, since COVID, uh, obviously the airline industry has been rocked and turned upside down, just like they were after 9-11, right? I mean, talk about a brutal industry. But Ed Bastion took over, I think, I think around 2014, 15 now, but about 2000, uh, prior to his become, uh, him being CEO, I was on a plane. I think it was around 2010. I was on a Delta flight. I was on my way to San Diego and there was a woman sitting next to me and she had kind of, she was in her sixties and she had kind of her hand, she had kind of her overhead, uh, her carry on in her lap. And she was in the middle seat and I was in the row, uh, the aisle seat. And I, I turned to her and I said, you know, do you want me to help? Can I help you put that up? And she goes, yeah, I, I just don't want to get yelled at. 
And I thought to myself, what has this industry come? I mean, come to when, when, you know, this was a Delta flight, by the way, and they had ranked, they had just ranked right around that same week, the worst in the industry as far as service, customer service. And they announced they were sending their 70, quote, 70,000 employees to customer service training. And fast forward, Ed Bastian becomes, takes over as CEO. And he's totally transformed Delta, at least prior to COVID. You know, I, we're going to see what happens with COVID now. But prior to COVID, uh, Delta, I noticed the difference. I mean, I noticed the difference between a couple of years ago when I was I was traveling Delta. And Delta's now become my preferred commercial. Uh, actually, the pilot, I'd much rather fly private somewhere. But it, when we're flying, when I'm flying commercial, I would much rather fly Delta than anyone else. And the reason why is the attitude that has come from top to bottom. You can't just send people to customer service training. It really is how does the CEO conduct themselves, right? But I noticed, I don't know, four or five years ago, that like as I'm getting off the plane, the pilots are standing there. They're, they don't just bolt and take off out of the plane. They're standing there thanking the customers for their uh, loyalty to Delta. Um, that's impressive, right? That's impressive. I noticed the uniforms of the flight attendants had changed dramatically. Uh, they look like a class act. And then just the whole attitude on the plane. I mean, it wasn't, it was no longer this, you know, sit down, shut up. We're here for your safety. It was, we're here for your safety and comfort. We want to make sure this is an enjoyable flight and we don't ever want to take our relationship for granted. So, you know, that is a testament to leadership and what a difference one person can make in a company. And that's why CEOs get paid so much. So leadership is a process. And I think that we throw that term around loosely um, in so many circles, leadership, but the most, the real effective leaders, there's a reason why they make a ton of money. Because if they're more effective, if you can take 70,000 Delta employees and make them 10 or 15% more productive and make your bottom line grow billions of dollars, I think you're worth something. And so leadership is a process. The next thing is, you know, what is your role as a leader and a CEO? And that's very different than what we're used to in the medical practices because it's not about us. And so the role, I think the best lessons I learned was listening to Herb Keller. Now, for those of you who don't know, Herb has passed. He was a CEO of Southwest. And he used to say the three most important things, and, and I'd write this down, the three most important, important things as a CEO, the role of the CEO. One is to create your culture. How do you create your culture? You have a few rules. You talk about them a lot. You be consistent. I mean, it's, it's, it, does this sound familiar for those of you who are parents, right? Be fair to everybody. You know, your integrity isn't whether you're stealing or not. Your integrity is, do people trust you? Because people are not going to follow you unless they trust you and believe in you and know that you'll have your back. And the minute you turn around, they turn around, you're not talking about them. That is what is culture. Our culture is a William Center, you know, family taking care of each other and you. And our motto is patience always come first. And we live that. That's our culture. Number two, the role of the CEO is to share their vision. What is your vision? 
I mean, what is your vision of your practice? I can tell you what our vision is, and, and we talk about this on a regular basis. We are looking to become a world-class, world-class destination practice where people come here and feel like family. That's our vision. It's not about one doctor. It's not about Williams. It's not about Pawnees. It's about the team. And then finally, you've got it. The, the third thing and the most important thing, I think one of the most important things of CEO is telling your people how you make money. You know, this is not, remember I said in the very beginning, business is not intuitive. It's not intuitive because we often hide behind this. Like as physicians, we don't want to talk about what's important. Like how do we make money? And I'll tell you a story. Uh, years ago at a strategic planning session, I went around the room and I asked, how do we make, how do we make money? Like when's our, when are we making the most, generating the most revenue? And I learned this from Herb Keller because you know what he told his people at Southwest? We make want money when the wheels on the plane are up. And I've witnessed this, and I think you've probably witnessed this too when you were traveling. I've witnessed this when I, I, was in a, I was in an airport once and I came in on it. I don't want to say the name of the airline, but I came in and I was, went across a, a way to, to get my other plane. And my plane was sitting there at the gate. And all of a sudden I saw a Southwest plane come pulling up on the other side of the uh, uh, of the other, uh, from the tarmac, tarmac into the, um, up to the uh, gate. I went to use the restroom. I came back. I was maybe 10 or 15 minutes more. I saw the Southwest plane pushing off. And my connecting flight was still there. But, well, they, there's a reason why the flight attendants are picking up the alleys, picking up the, helping clean that plane, because they realize they make money when the wheels are up. So you need to tell your people, okay, as a CEO, create your culture, share your vision, but you need to tell your people how you make money. Um, I, I'll tell you a lesson I learned a few years ago, and we now do this. Um, and it was a hard thing to do. The most effective business leaders share the financials with the team, with the management team. And we do now. We share our financials because how can they affect the bottom line if they don't know how you make money. Okay. Money's a dirty, a dirty word in business, right? We're not supposed to earn medicine. We're not supposed to talk about it. That's not true. I mean, think about it. You know, I mean, what we're trying to do is provide really fair value. So someone walks out of your business and practice and knows that you, you know, that what, what you did for them was add value and what they paid for it was fair. So why wouldn't you tell your people how you make money? The other thing is, how can they be effective if they don't know how you make money? And as I was mentioning at the strategic planning session, I went around the room and I was astounded because one of our patient concierge, you know what she said? We make money on those Wednesday afternoons when it's like so busy in the office. And it blew my mind because we don't charge for follow-ups on our cosmetic patients. So Wednesday afternoon, other than consults, which you're generating a couple hundred bucks here and a couple hundred bucks there, it's a lost leader. I mean, we make money when our patients are in the operating room on the operating room table for a cosmetic procedure. And now our entire team knows that. So communicate as a role, as a CEO, how you create your culture or create your culture, share your vision and tell your team how you make money. The next most important lesson that I learned was, you know, and we're trained the wrong way as physicians and this is why it's not intuitive. Okay. It's not about me. Okay. It's about your team. 
And I now realize um, if there's one book that I can give you to read, it's Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Good to Great uh, really, how do I do justice to this book? Jim Collins, what he basically did is he looked at publicly traded companies and looked to ones who beat the S&P for 15 years. And why did they continue to beat the competition? Why publicly traded companies? Because there's financial data in publicly traded companies compared to little small companies. And it's, it's public data that you can, you can mine through. And why did he look at 15 years? Because 10 years is the average time of a CEO. So he looked at companies who were able to not only do this, do it well, beat the competition, but have a good succession plan. And what it came down to, when he tracked these CEOs down in their farm fields, when they were just in the twilight of their career and their golden years, they all talked about the same people. They talked about their team and what they did for their team and how their team rose to the challenge. And what I realize now, and, and you know, I think early on, we're so focused on how we are as surgeons and how good are we and, 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 you know, it's all about us and it's not about us. If you want to have, if you want to learn how to really leverage yourself through leadership, uh, read Jim Collins book and realize that it's not about you. It's about the team and building a team. And now one of the most important things that I do is I want to know, uh, what team sports someone's played in high school and I want to know what impact that's had on them because they, they do, let's face it, when you've played on a team, you do get it more than someone who's, you know, played chess their whole life, maybe played tennis their whole life because it's, we can only perform so high by ourselves. Um, so it's not about us. It's about the team. And now what we're trying to do, everything we do, and I can get into story after story, it's all about building a more effective team. Um, Said a different way, I used to get excited when we brought on an amazing new piece of technology. That's no longer the case. My, what I get excited about is when we hire a rock star. Because when we hire a rock star, they just make it happen. And, you know, we have an economy of scale now. We're big enough that we can be selective, whether it's hiring a CFO or whether it's hiring a marketing director. And we can afford to throw a bigger salary at it. And then what we do is hold these, hold, you know, hold people accountable, make them show up, present the data and know that they're delivering. But I got to tell you, when you get, when you get a rock star on your team, they put it right to the bottom line. They put it right to the bottom line. And that is why so many practices have a very dysfunctional organizational structure because the doctors don't realize that it's not about the team. It's, they think it's about them. And so uh, read Jim Collins' book. It's not about you. It's about building a team. And as you build a team, you become less relevant. And then again, this is counterintuitive to us who are trying to brand ourselves, right? We think it's all about us. But in reality, our goal, if we want to be, make ourselves a more, uh, a more valuable business, something that private equity is interested in, we need to become less relevant. The next mistake I made was don't ever, ever, ever let anyone become indispensable. We all know these people, right? They kind of build their little thing around them. Everybody needs time off. 
And if you have that person that is indispensable, they got you. You know what I'm talking about. We've all been there, right? You have that one person who knows all the secrets. So we have, this is part of our culture because we are part of a team and we can't grow if ever, if one person has all the information is that we have cross training in place for everything. I'll tell you a story. Um, we had a bookkeeper many years ago that was uh, indispensable, if you will, you know, and my management team and I talked about it. What are we going to do? So the first thing we did is we we took one business. So we, you know, we, we sat her down and we talked to her about the importance of being able to grow and the importance of her, important that she's able to have her time off because we can't have the business all dependent on one. I mean, what if somebody gets in an accident or God forbid something worse happens and you have that indispensable person? The other problem is you have, you've created a, an environment of dysfunction when you have one person who's too indispensable. There's got to be cross training. There's got to be systems and policies in place for somebody else can step in. And that's part of our culture now. But when I had this person, what we ended up doing was uh, we had one business, a surgery center, for example. We said, you know what? We need to cross train and, and need to bring another person in. And she fought us. Yeah, she fought us. She didn't like that at all because it was taking her power away. Yeah. So we brought another person in and sure enough, I mean, she was, she was not happy. She did not cooperate. She did not, uh, when I say cooperate, she made it very difficult. And in fact, uh, it was almost a toxic environment for the other person she was uh, helping to train, but we were growing and we couldn't have, and by the way, she was starting to slip. She was starting to slip on some of her other responsibilities because it was getting to be too much. Um, Ultimately, down the road, what we ended up doing is bringing another person in of her caliber and having her cross-trained, and she ended up she ended up leaving her position. She was so uh, so upset over it. It ultimately ended up being a good thing for us because now we have upgraded our talent pool. We have different bookkeepers, and we have an overseeing CFO who uh, holds them accountable. But the, the point being, when you have someone that's indispensable, uh, you're setting yourself up for dysfunction and you're setting yourself up for failure. It's so important that you are able to, to, to cross train. And, you know, hiring slowly and hire slowly, fire quickly um, is something I live by because that's, you know, Jack Welsh used to say this. But it's also important to realize in a position like this, we made a decision she was going, Right. Toward the end, we made a decision, but we didn't just walk her to the door. You know, we knew she was not part of our culture because she was trying to keep it to herself. And we can all picture, could be your patient care coordinator, right? It could be your patient care coordinator, could be a manager. Um, we had, we had one point, a person who was just doing all of our insurance billing and she was becoming indispensable and she was letting us know that. So what we end up doing, you know, if you walk that person to the door, it becomes very, very disruptive, right? Especially if you put up with it for years. So what we do, and the other thing is, what if you got like a bookkeeper writing 300 checks a month and you walk that person to the door? Now you've got your business totally turned upside down. What we do is we hire, we hire, 
another person who is of higher caliber. We bring them in. We, you know, we use this as we're growing and cross training. And what will often happen is either that person will allow themselves to be held accountable and fall in line or they'll eliminate themselves. But we no longer allow anyone ever, ever, ever to become indispensable. Um, and that's a lesson that I learned early on. Um, another mistake is not the reality of not doing adequate market research and analysis. We opened a second, we had a very successful Rejuva Center medical spa. We went to a separate location um, and without getting into all the details, after two years and probably losing a quarter million dollars, we pulled the plug on that. Uh, we looked at our data, tr our trends of our growth, and we looked at our debt service, and we looked at where we were going, and we figured that it was going to take another two years to be at a break-even. Um, but what it really came down to it is we went on a hunch. We didn't do our market analysis. And what we didn't understand about that community was that the culture was a little different than ours. Um, and they, we were, we were uh, ahead of our time there. So next lesson is pay attention to your bait. Know your benchmarking and know your KPIs. If you, just like a pilot, okay, you want to have the, if, look at the pilot, look in the cockpit and look at all the information they have in front of them. That's their dashboard, right? It's different than car. There's a lot more information. There's you know, who's got in the sky, what altitude are you at, what's your vertical speed. Um, so why, why are KPIs and benchmarking so important? You know, you can use the consultants. This is one place I think the consultants are helpful is, as far as, and we have a whole set of benchmarks and KPIs that we follow. But if you're not following your benchmarks, you don't know where you stand. I'll give you an example. About 10 years ago, uh, one of my partners, Dr. Polonese, who's a plastic surgeon, came up to me and says, I got to tell you, I just feel like we're overstaffed. Um, now, I felt that way before. In fact, I felt that way once in the surgery center, and I was correct because I could feel it. I could feel we had too many people per doctor, you know, wandering around. But... If you know, for example, and know the, know the business model, but you know in a surgical practice uh, what your admit staff should be at percentage-wise, for example, and that's different. Surgery center, the staff costs are higher. You've got 25, 30-year-old uh, seasoned registered nurses. Uh, and admit in a surgical practice, you may not have any registered nurses. You may have all LPNs on your nursing team, and you may have uh, clerical in the front desk. And that all-in comp uh, benchmarked might be 20% or 21%. And if you're at 20% or 19% and you feel like you're overstaffed, it's okay. You take a deep breath and you say, okay, we're not overstaffed. So know your benchmarking and know your KPIs and follow them on a very regular basis. I do this with our managers every single month. I do this for our marketing team bi-monthly at our bi-weekly meetings. I want to know what are our KPIs because that is what allows me to keep our fingers on the pulse. And I never piloted, as I would say, the plane with all of the information in full view. And a KPI from one business or, you know, so what is a key performance indicator? A key performance indicator is that, that indicator that's most likely to affect your bottom line positively. Now, you can overmeasure 
right? You can overmeasure things. You can measure 30 data points. But what are the key performance indicators? What are the ones that are going to make? And we now understand this for every single business that we have. And we track and watch those. And just like the Dow Industrial Average, there are times when what we think is a K performance indicator comes off the KPI chart to watch. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe it's microneedling. You know, maybe we're rocking it with microneedling in 2016 or 17, but in 2020, it's no longer a KPI. Get it off the KPI, uh, get it off the dashboard and find something more relevant. So the importance or lack thereof is the lesson I learned of benchmarking and key performance indicators for running a business. Next, and this is, this is, oh my gosh, this is so, so important. This next one. Pitfalls of owning technology. I'm going to say it again because this may be the most important item to talk about. Um, I would dare say that 80%, maybe 80 and the, and the equipment companies are not going to want to hear me say this. 80% of technology do not make good business sense. You know, I have a colleague of mine on the West Coast, good friend of mine, who buys a piece of equipment because I have this happen all the time. You know, my partners or associates or somebody comes up and says, we need this piece of, you know, neck, neck tightening procedure. And we have a whole set of criteria that we will use to purchase equipment. But the reality is when you look at, you do true cost accounting and you run a spreadsheet, 80% of equipment purchases based on my experience, not just here, but mentoring other doctors, do not make good business sense. Why do we buy them? We buy them because we buy them out of fear sometimes. We buy them because the competition has them. We buy them because the competition is doing thread lifting, right? Or we buy... Uh, a new neck tightening procedure because people are quote calling or we're, you know, one of the best, most important business tenants is don't ever make a decision based on fear, make it based on your vision and make it based on benchmarking and make it based on research and, and numbers. But most of us, because technology is, is, you know, we're science people, right? So that's exciting by bringing new technology. We, we buy it because we give in to our staff that says, quote, you know, the competition has this, we need to get this. Buddy of mine on the West Coast, every time he buys a piece of, and I, you know what? Rarely do I let my guard down and fail on this, but upon occasion, I'll let our staff talk me into buying something. And a year or two later, it's not being used. And again, it rarely happens because we have a pretty strict, set of criteria that we follow now in order to purchase something. But upon occasion, um, we do that. One of my friends on the West Coast, you know what he does? When when he's financed something for five years and he's two years into it and no one's using it, he rolls that piece of technology right into the kitchen for everybody to trip over while they're eating their lunch. And they have to look at that thing until it's paid off in three or four years. So we are very, very deliberate and Look at technology seriously before we buy it, because if you just keep this in mind, 80% of your purchases don't make good business sense. And then the next lesson, make sure you're doing cost accounting on every piece of equipment and everything you do. 
What does that mean? It means the cost taking into consideration running a spreadsheet on the cost of goods, the pro rata share of square footage rent, the insurance, staff training, disposables, you name it. Um, and I go back to the same thing about 80% of technologies don't even don't make sense. And why do we do it? But do cost accounting on everything because you can be losing. And this is what I've seen when I looked at the PL balance sheets and talked to and helped other docs. So many of us are losing money over here and we're making money over here, but we don't even know that we're necessarily losing money. When you figure out the cost of that room, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm going to pick on estheticians here. It blows my mind when I hear doctors building out square footage for estheticians. Other than the money you're making on product, and by the way, you're not making a ton, you may be making 20%. Having an esthetician do facials does not make good business sense. And I can elaborate this in uh, some more detail, but when you do cost accounting to tying up that room for an esthetician to do a facial, it doesn't make any sense at all. Why are you competing with the spa down the street that can that it, it, it is so much more focused on this? It doesn't make sense. So cost accounting on everything you do. The next mistake is putting a greater emphasis on technology versus my team. Uh, I think this is very common for doctors for all the reasons I mentioned before. Now we hire very, very slowly. And what do I get jacked up over? I get jacked up. I get jacked up over hiring rock stars. I get so excited because I know what they're capable of. And all of a sudden you walk down the hall and you see something new and you're like, oh, what is that? Or you look at the P&L and, and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened here? You know, how much we brought in over here. And it's a result of, of an amazing rock star that you have on your team. Technologies are not it, guys. If you think about it, if I look at facial plastic surgery, you know, what have been the big advances over the past 20 years, maybe in facelift technique, but look at the technology, none of it's going to do an amazing, none of it is going to do what you can accomplish by a good surgical procedure. Um, most of it has barely any science to substantiate it and almost none of it or some of it has some long-term results. So mistake, next mistake is, is putting a greater emphasis on technology versus building a team. That's where I'm, I'm looking to, to spend my time now. And then finally, the biggest mistake is that I see so many of our colleagues waiting too late to plan their succession. When should you be planning your succession? early 50s, if you're looking to go to 65 or so, and maybe sooner. I was very deliberate in my late 40s. Um, at the age of 61, I, I don't have to work right now. And I am, um, we are fully set up for succession. I can't tell you the number of times I come up at a meeting and people come up to me and like, yeah, I know you got this all figured out. Um, I need to come visit you. I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to retire. By the way, they're 65. It is. It's not too late, but you're going to be, you're not, you're going to be leaving a lot of money on the table because you don't have anything that's worth anything. So starting young, being very deliberate um, on succession planning and realizing if in order, and here's a little bit of an epiphany, in order to be very, very effective in succession, plan, succession planning, you need to work in a direction that makes you become less relevant. 
And that's a hard thing for us to deal with, isn't it? As physicians, as surgeons who put a lot of emphasis on building a career for ourselves. So many lessons, so, so little time. For those who are interested, uh, follow my journey on DrEdwinWilliams.com, D-R-E-D-W-I-N Williams.com. I've got podcasts, I've got programs, I've got uh, uh, a book there. If you're interested in reading The White, uh, White Coat Entrepreneur, you can read about my story and um, lots more. So I wish you the very best of luck in your journey. Um, I hope you learn something from the lessons that I've learned and the biggest mistakes that I've made over the past uh, almost 30 years in practice. So thanks again, and I hope you have an awesome day. Hey, I forgot to tell you about next month's podcast. I hope you're interested. Um, it's the entitled is it's entitled so you want to open a surgery ambulatory surgery center uh, the lessons I've learned over the past 23 years of running a two-room ambulatory surgery center um, hope you can join me